1: Hey everyone, this is Roman Prokopchuk and this is the Digital Savage Experience podcast. Today I have with me Martha Hunt Handler. Martha is an environmentalist, an award-winning author, and board president of the Wolf Conservation Center. She also has an upcoming book coming out, Winter of the Wolf. Thank you for joining me today.
0: Thank you for having me. This is great.
1: so tell me a little bit about your journey. How did you kind of get involved with, you know, what you're doing now? How did that kind of come about?
0: I could hear nature speaking to me. And most of it was very uh, worried about what was going to happen to the area because it was going to be a housing development in a few short years. Most of the woods had been destroyed Probably by the time I was about 12. There wasn't much left um i didn't really think this was unusual until I started telling a few friends who laughed at me, and so I sort of kept it to myself and over time, it was getting harder and harder to hear their voices and I also had wolves in almost all of my dreams as a child they were always kind of showing me things and um pointing out things I probably would have missed otherwise um didn't really know what that was all about or thought maybe everybody had something showing them the way things just to learn a bit, little bit more. I ended up leaving my house at 16. I moved to Steamboat, Colorado to become a resident so I could go to University of Colorado Boulder um, as a resident. And while I was in Steamboat, sort of the exact same thing was happening. There was a new corporation had built, bought the mountain and a, everything that was sort of sacred and pure about steamboat was becoming commercial very quickly. And I started hearing voices again and decided this is what I wanted to do my life. So I became an environmental consultant and was doing that for probably about 15 years. And when I was in my early forties, I found out that my best friend's 12 year old son had been found hanging from a belt. And my girlfriend and I had grown up very spiritual, just sort of always uh, believing in the transitory nature of souls and because they're energy, they don't really die, they just go into something else um, and that they're sort of always around us. But when this happened to her son, it felt like all of our beliefs deserted us and it was very hard to understand how a 12 year old son, that this could be his whole journey um, so I started journaling just to try to figure out what was going on in my own head and how to be supportive of my girlfriend, which I just didn't even know the first thing to say because my own kids were about the same age. Um, and about four months later, I started hearing Brendan, her son, talking to me and telling me that he wanted me to write a fictionalized book about his journey. Um, My girlfriend always believed that he didn't take his life, but it was really hard to see that there could be any other explanation. But Brendan kept saying, just if you stick with me, I'm going to, it's all going to unfold. And it did, but it took 18 years to go from journaling to writing this novel. And it's the first novel I've ever written. I was mostly an environmental technical writer. Um, But it's been an incredible journey of uh, a rediscovery for me of my spiritual beliefs and digging in deeper. And it was like a very hard place most days to sit with how much pain. It's, so it's told from the perspective of a sister who's lost her brother. And she truly believes it wasn't a suicide and is sort of on a mission to prove that she's right. Um, but ultimately, I believe it's a story of going from grief to going to gratitude and believing that there's a reason we're all here learning lessons and moving along. And yeah, I think, you know, at first when the whole COVID thing hit, it's like, Oh my God, my first novel takes me 18 years to write. And now there won't be a book tour. There won't be a launch party. Um, But I also think it's a perfect book for these times because it's a book you should probably sit with for a little bit and think about and In light of all the death that we're seeing and people having no closure or the kind of closure that they would have wanted, maybe a a proper funeral, last rites and all that. I hope that it goes some way in, in letting people know that, you know, that kind of thing is not ultimately a very important last step. And that if you could just believe that they're around you and you just have to work on getting yourself into a deep enough place that you can start hearing them and listening to them so i hope it's ultimately very hopeful
1: yeah and i think that's important i think everyone has gone through some kind of loss or obviously death in their lives i think it's important in terms of kind of the grieving process also coming to terms with it being okay with it and you know whatever your beliefs are personally obviously I had a loss, uh, February 2019, my grandfather passed away, that was a big male role model in my life. And I think, uh, you know, different things you read and and conversations you have really help you get over that. So I actually switched over to an interview format on my podcast a month after he passed. Through that process, I learned what people went through in terms of some of the hardships and struggles they've been, how they've coped, and in turn, help me with that kind of grief and coping process as well. So I think having a book that kind of relates in that sense as well can really help people through that, you know, grieving cycle.
0: Good. That's what, I mean. That is my biggest hope. Another big lesson in my book is, um, believing in your knowing and your intuition. Like I would always try to tell us to my kids, like, if you get that feeling in your stomach, you're doing something that's uncomfortable. It could be wrong. It could be, uh, not the right time, but you get those feelings all the time. And I think the more you tune off to those, which I think we tend to tell our kids they need to fit in. We don't really give them a lot of room to be themselves and think out of the box. Um, I mean, I hate to look back, but I think like, boy, if I could tell my younger self, don't listen. When people say you can't hear the things you're hearing, just believe in it. Um, I probably would have been a writer long ago. Um, I think kids especially hear, you know, it could be one sentence, like, you know, a math teacher saying, well, math isn't, you know, the subject for you, or I guess you'll never be an artist or, you know, just that it's all it took. Or, you know, for a lot of young girls, it's, um, you're going to have to watch your weight. You're already, you know, getting a little chubby in the middle or it's just one little thing and all of a sudden your whole life starts going in a different direction and not, not a very positive one. And so I would really want to encourage everyone, but especially kids, to really, uh, really believe that they they know. You just know a lot more than you think you know.
1: Yeah, I think it's important kind of coming to terms with kind of your own truth and figuring out what's best for you or what do you enjoy. Because like you said, people are going to dissuade you or say, you know, why are you doing this? You have no experience in this, that or the other. But that ultimate first step probably, you know, for me and at least doing other things and maybe for you as well, that the hardest thing or the first hurdle was yourself. So overcoming that, overcoming your own fears, and then stepping into whatever you, you know, desire to do or the path that you wanted to take.
0: It took me a long time to even tell anyone that I was writing a novel because it was so far out of my wheelhouse that I just was afraid everyone would be like, well, you've never done it before. How do you know what you're doing? And what are you talking to someone that passed away? And like, I can imagine all the, um, but finally a few years in, just because I was spending so much time doing it, I had to come clean. And in the middle of all this, I was cleaning out um, a bunch of stuff from my parents had both passed away. And I came across this book that I had um, written and illustrated when I was seven years old. And this flashback of me, my parents had been out to dinner and They drove the babysitter home and my dad came back and I was so excited to show him what I'd been doing all night. And he like, you know, just glanced at it and said, I said, well, I'm going to be a writer when I grow up. And he said, writers don't make any money. You can't be a writer. And I really think I took that to heart. That's all it took. And I was like, okay, you know, I can write scientifically, but I never believed in myself as a fiction writer again. So yeah, it took a long time to re-believe that I was the writer that I was, that I believed I could be when I was seven.
1: Yeah. And I think it's important, obviously, even if you do something down the line, as long as you do what you wanted to do instead of, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, looking back on it, because people don't necessarily regret the things that they attempted, whether good and bad, you know, from the bad, at least if you take something out of it and apply it later in life, then you get something out of it. But if you never tried, it's that kind of what if in the back of your mind.
0: Yeah. Never a good place to be. And I'm like in that phase of my life where so many of my friends have sort of maybe fell into a career along the way. And now that they're late fifties, 60, they're like, okay, time to do something else. I have no idea really what I want to do. Yeah. And trying to just sit with that and maybe meditate on it or asking people that knew you way back when, or your parents, like, what were my hobbies? What, were my, what did I really like to do? I did this very interesting thing for my kids thanks to a, a mommy and me teacher I had way back when. So they're all in their twenties. And she had suggested that we write our kids a letter every year on their birthday. Um, something we'd never show them, but it's just, here's what my year, year was like. The things you like to do, the friends that you had, the things I've noticed about you that were different from other people Um, and when I turned 60 last year, I handed them each these books and I have never gotten so much, uh, like tears and joy and like for them to tap into the thoughts they were having, the things that they wanted to do, um, how strong their beliefs were about certain ideas. And they all said, like, they came back to like, they're doing what they were supposed to do. Like they didn't even, they thought they fell into what they're doing and now they realized, boy, I really wanted to do that. Even when I was five years old, I was telling you, you know, I thought comedy was the best thing in the world or I like to put puzzles together or that kind of thing. So it's something I would highly recommend to any new parents out there. Um, it's a pretty cool gift to give your kid.
1: Yeah, I'm actually a um, foster parents. Our first placement we had for a year, they ended up actually getting reunified. We thought we were going to adopt them, but we've been writing them emails every week, every day about our experiences. So when they grow up, handing that to them and basically sharing that and maybe it relives those experiences.
0: Wow, what an experience. Oh my gosh, that's pretty heavy.
1: Yeah, since um June 1st of 2018 so it's been 2 years we've uh fostered 20 kids. We have currently 4 kids under the age of 6 which has been interesting with the whole shelter in place during COVID but you know, it's fun.
0: You have a busy household, my goodness.
1: Yeah, my schedule revolves around their nap time and bedtime in terms of uh, you know, conference calls, recordings and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I feel a little guilty because this has been this Lockdown has been the best time in my life for me because I have my four 20 something year olds and one of them has a girlfriend, so there's seven of us. And all I wanted to do was have like really nice, drawn out family dinners when they were little, but they were all playing sports and it was just really hard to ever do this. So now I'm getting like this second wave of being able to do just to meet them as 20 year olds. And even though we all live in New York City and we see them frequently, it's not like you get down to the really deep topics, and especially everything that's been brought up in this period has really lent itself to opening up um, a long way, so that's been really great.
1: Yeah, and I think it's uh, taking advantage of the situation and making the best of it. Obviously, people are stuck, but it's not like you're in prison. You're at home usually. Sometimes with your loved ones, obviously, there's people out there that have been kind of shelter-in-place by themselves, but, I mean, you have food, you have water. Luckily, that hasn't been disrupted in terms of a supply chain. And you have entertainment. So instead of kind of looking negatively, it's take advantage of the time, spend time with family, reconnect, You know, learn a new skill, pivot. Like you said, some of your friends, this may be a great time to pivot and figure out what your passions are for the next stage of your life.
0: Right. We're also doing, uh, we have this extended uh, book club that we started as soon as, almost as soon as this all started like in early March and uh, we have a mixed race family and the first book we read is um, Jason Reynolds stamped um, from the beginning, racism, anti-racism and you. And so it's been this whole journey before this whole George Floyd thing where we've been intense discussion. So um, I have a nephew adopted from Ethiopia to from Jamaica. And they've never been able to express the kind of things that go on in their daily lives because they want to hurt their white parents, you know, and tell them, you know, this is what happened to me on my bus because they feel so mixed. Like, I'm so glad I'm here and I'm not back in Ethiopia. And yet life is not as rosy as I make it out to be. And this book group has really given them a chance to uh, discuss some of that and it's been the most wild experience to have this whole thing unfold in the middle of this uh, book group. It's been eye-opening, to say the least.
1: Yeah, 14 out of our 20 kids uh, are and were actually African-American. So um, it, it's kind of one of those things you may be a little naive to unless you, you know, experience it firsthand. But, you know, taking the kids to the doctor or other places, there's like dirty looks And sometimes, obviously, like preferential treatment, like people won't see you for a reason. So I definitely see that and obviously experiencing it because a lot of people are in a bubble and don't necessarily, you know, see a lot of it, even though it does exist. So,
0: Yeah. How do you know what to say given their ages with what's going on?
1: Um, We don't even really watch the news. I mean, there's stuff like there was somewhat rioting pretty close to me, but not as bad. I mean, broadly speaking, and then explaining to them what COVID is also is confusing because they want to know why they're not having, you know, in-person visitation with their biological parents. We have to facilitate that via Zoom and then tell them, you know, the air is bad because, I mean, they don't understand. So it's one of those hard concepts, but I mean, kind of talking down to that level, which they can process and tell them as much as possible and kind of, if they do ask questions, take it from there.
0: Wow. That's a tough one. It's a really tough one. Yep. So what motivates
1: you to succeed?
0: Um, I mean partly because um all of my author proceeds are going to the Wolf Conservation Center. We're obviously facing very difficult time because we've been labeled sort of uh, I guess, phase four, like with as like a museum or a zoo, we'll be the last ones to open. Um, so it's been tough for us. Uh, we also, so we have about 50 wolves right now, um, that will hopefully someday be released, um, uh, either to New Mexico or to North Carolina. And we feed them the deer that get killed on our roadways and without cars, (laughs) not a lot of deer. (laughs) (laughs) So So it's just funny when people are like, so what's worrying you? It's like, I need more dead deer. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do here. It's a lot of wolves to feed. Um, and I think we're doing really great work just educating people about a top predator and how important they are. So that's one. Um, but probably my biggest uh, hope for, for my book is just, yeah, getting people to recognize their intuition and and trusting themselves and kind of digging deep and helping them go from a place of grief to gratitude. Yeah. So it's been, I mean, I really appreciate people like you that are allowing me to speak and um, spread the word because I had no idea how difficult book marketing is, especially when you can't be out in bookstores, you know, getting in front of people um, in real time. So this is hugely helpful to me.
1: Yeah, it's, it's it's in my opinion, a superior medium also in terms of audio because it's the only medium that you can really multitask with. Obviously not processed 100% of the time, but you can be driving and listening and taking most of it in or working out or doing something else with everything else like video or image. You have to take your attention off of it. So I think it's a superior medium. And like you said... There's been a lot of people moving to, you know, kind of podcast, podcast interviews and that kind of thing that have lost different speaking engagements, also different in-person venues. So I think it's been an important channel to get some of those people to fill that void in terms of like authors for book sales, awareness, business and that kind of thing as well.
0: Yeah, podcasts are great. I could listen to them 24 seven, and there's so many different kinds. I mean, it's really fun. It's a great education for sure, which may be the way education is going at this point.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting with everything defined. So this is kind of my personal interest in terms of a question. So in terms of kind of uh, wolf habitats and like in terms of environments with COVID, obviously, there is a lot of stay at home stuff. How has that impacted, you know, wolves or their kind of territories or stuff like that. I I see other places in the world where anim, animals are actually like flourishing and nature is healing. So I'm kind of interested in that.
0: Right. Um, I mean, ours are all, you know, in uh, enclosures, and even though they're big enclosures, they're like three acres. So uh, we have cameras on them. Um, most of them are kept off exhibit because they need to go to the wild. And if they get at all habituated to humans, it would probably be a death sentence for them. So we only have three that we call our ambassadors that will not be going anywhere. And when you come up to the center, those are the three that you'll guaranteed to see. The other ones you might see fleeing a little bit. but um, And they, um, I can't really tell that they, I just went there on Friday night to have a cocktail with them. And I couldn't really they seemed happy to see me, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that they care, but I think out in nature, it's a whole different thing. Um, we're up in South Salem, New York right now, which is like an hour outside of the city. And for the kids and I, I don't think I've ever spent this much time just on a daily basis. We put a bunch of cameras all over the place outside and we didn't know we had bobcats and we have loads of bobcats. Um, And we were watching all of the snapping turtles this week lay their eggs. And then we had cameras that showed that skunks came along and dug them all up and ate them all. (laughs) It's been like this whole like nature resurgence. And this morning I woke up and like the bird feeder was like smashed on the ground and chairs were tumbled over. So I'm thinking bear. I mean, I haven't seen one, but I don't know what else could have done that much destruction up here. But It's been magical. Um, And I just I pray that people are feeling that deeper connection when they're immersed in it for a while. Those people that fled to the country Um, because all the environment wants to do is come back and you don't really need to do much to let that happen. But uh, yeah, lack of pollution and lack of people and hugely helpful.
1: So in terms of kind of releasing them back in the wild, is there some kind of evaluation where they meet some kind of criteria that they can go back?
0: Yeah, so um, so our Mexican gray wolves go to Mexico, New Mexico, and Arizona. And it's, it's strange that our wolves are all owned by the Fish and Wildlife Department, but we're actually suing the Fish and Wildlife Department because they're only allowing pup cross fosters right now. So pup cross foster happens when we have um, pups that were born Basically, at the same time, it's a wild litter. And we take the pups out of our litter. Maybe, so let's say it's a litter of six. They probably take two out, and they put it in the wild ones. And they know the wild ones gave birth at a certain time because they're collared, and they know that they didn't move from a certain area for over 48 hours. Um, and then we put them into their den, and the mother immediately adopts them, fosters them. Um and we usually take wild ones out. And this is um done a lot for genetic purposes. So the Mexican gray wolves were down to six in the world. So in almost all of them are related, so really hard number to come back from. So we literally have a frozen zoo. We have eggs and sperm, and now we're doing lots of um artificial insemination because wolves don't travel very well. So a better way than moving a wolf around and hoping that it gets along with who we need it to mate with. There's this huge algorithm of who needs to mate with who so that we get the cleanest genetics to go back out into the field. So now there is about 120 wolves, Mexican gray wolves, that are in the wild, and they're doing fairly well. Um, There's still a lot of illegal kills, but um, everybody's working really hard to educate people. Um, And the red wolves um, are unfortunately, they were at... There was a point when there was 14 in the world, and now there's only 23, I think, um, and possibly only one breeding pair of those. Until that's been a bit of a uh, uphill battle, and we're really fighting hard the legislation there because they're really their their proposal after studying this for like six years was to take all the wolves back into into zoos, like they don't want them wild anymore in North Carolina, and it's it's just sad because it's only. You know, a few very wealthy uh, people have very good connections with their legislatures that is stopping us from putting wolves out there. So we'll see. It's an ongoing battle, but we're the people that do it are incredibly dedicated. And um, um, there's some great people that are popping up that are really getting down and talking to the hunters and the um, the farmers to to work with them because. Back in the day, you had like range riders that would make sure the cattle all, you know, stuck together and would protect them from wolves. And now, you know, people's animals are just basically all over our Bureau of Land Management lands. There's, they're not, they don't stick together at all. Um, And so she's going out and kind of training some 4-H kids to be professional range riders again, something that hasn't been done in probably a hundred years to get, because it's a huge difference. If the cattle all stick together or the sheep, then the wolf is not going to go near them. They understand there's too, too much of a big pack. So I like to separate one and find the weak link. Um, So one woman in particular has been just really good at like actually sitting down and listening to them because for a long time, it's just been like shoot and shut up. And uh, the two sides were just warring with each other. So I'm seeing some hope that working together, we can make this work for everybody. Cause I mean, nobody wants cattle to be killed by a wolf. Um, and I understand that for them, that even though they're going to slaughter them at some point, they are, they feel responsible for these animals and it's not a nice death, but it is like less than 1% and they get paid very well. They can prove it was a wolf that took the animal down, but I'd like to see no conflict.
1: That's really interesting.
0: So what's one
1: piece of advice you have for the audience, personal or professional?
0: Um, I think in terms of my book, um, I know that I was, I was with a friend and I was pretty stuck at a point. The book was way too long. Um, usually for a first-time novelist, about 30,000 words is about as much as you want to go. My book was at One hundred and twenty thousand, and i just could not figure out how to cut it down and then someone mentioned a book coach and i was like i've never heard of a book coach so i found one and it was just uh life-changing because in a few short sessions what she had me do um in terms of outlining my whole story which i'd just never done before and then like looking at every sentence and seeing You know, if it doesn't move the plot along, if it doesn't move a character along, um, doesn't move an action along or doesn't further define anything, then it has to go. And I think probably as a first-time novelist, I was just putting everything that I thought was interesting or funny that had ever happened in my life. And she would keep saying, you know, funny story has nothing to do with this story. (laughs) Like, move it off for another book, but it can't go here. And it was just great when I've been working by myself for so long in this, you know, just void of anyone telling me anything to have someone just quickly pinpoint what was wrong, what needed to go and what needed to stay. And like just maybe two months, my entire book was where I needed it to be. So hugely appreciative that someone recommended someone like that because I've been to writers' conferences, never heard the term book coach.
1: Yeah, I think it's important to get an outside perspective or kind of run something through other people for their opinions or someone that's a professional that, you know, helps with a specific task because it gets you that much further a lot faster, like in your uh, situation that maybe if you didn't have one, you still would probably be, you know, deciding what to kind of cut out or, you know, where to focus.
0: Yes, so true. Yeah, just ask. It's a good lesson in life too, right? <laughs> Don't be afraid to just ask for help. People always want to give it to you.
1: I agree. So I really appreciate you stopping by today. Can you let the audience know how they can find you and the book when it's coming out?
0: Okay, so um my website you can buy the book off of there. It's marthahunthandler.com. Um, um it's available at Barnes and Noble, independent bookstores, um Amazon. And again, it's called Winter of the Wolf, and it comes out July 7th. Awesome. Thanks again for stopping by. Thank you, Roman. I really appreciate it. This podcast has been brought to you by Nova Zora Digital. Find out how Nova Zora Digital can help your company grow online. Learn more at NovaZoraDigital.com. Until next time, all you digital savages.